0: Well, hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus, and I'm glad that you've joined me for this episode of the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about eschatology. And this is a topic that I've been really looking forward to getting into on this podcast. I'm sure that many of you have your own uh, positions and theories about it, or have heard a lot of different opinions and theories about it. We're going to get into this a bit today and o- do an overview, an introduction into the different views of the end times and also why it matters now this is going to be a little bit of a longer episode so i hope that you stick with me the whole way but let's jump on in the theotivity podcast theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together here you'll find audio narration of articles episodes exploring the faith culture the arts and media systematic theology apologetics guest interviews with christian thinkers creatives pastors theologians and much more At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. Okay, so the topic of eschatology, that that is the study of last things. That's what eschatology means. Eschaton is the last, right, in Greek. So eschatology is the study of last things. This is an area of theology that is often considered really highly controversial, uh, debatable, and divisive, right? Uh, It's true that many people can be adamantly and even aggressively committed to their particular understanding of a Uh, of how history unfolds and the consummation of all things. And and some end times zealots, right, are even willing to call others heretics for differing from their particular point of view. Uh, You know, one only needs to visit a Facebook group on eschatology or Reddit thread or chat forum on this topic to see just how vile some of the interactions can turn. On the other hand, though, a lot of Christians in the evangelical church today they consider eschatology as an unimportant part of their doctrine. They categorize it as a secondary or tertiary issue. Uh, they, you know, can, they could end up saying things like, you know, we just need to all agree that Christ is coming back, and that's the one thing, right? And that can be a polite, dim- dismissive sort of way of turning the topic to something else that is less uncomfortable to speak about when it comes up. Uh, and this can be driven by fear or ignorance or even apathy, right? Um, But many others view eschatology as the sort of thing that, you know, only ivory tower theologians will debate. Right. Uh, But, you know, it has no real relevance to their lives today. And others, though, they perhaps see it more as like a doom and gloom sort of topic that crazy televangelists obsessed with tensions in the Middle East get all fired up about, right? Going on about say, a rebuilt temple and something about a fat hiffer for some reason that they don't even want to get into. Uh, even more, some others feel like it's a topic that they can never, ever hope to understand. I mean, after all, if all these PhDs can't figure it out, then how can a layperson like me figure it out, right? And uh, that's the way a lot of people Think about this. And as a result, many Christians and churches today decide, you know, either explicitly or implicitly to avoid healthy debate and discussion concerning this topic altogether. And many others simply adopt, um, you know, the tradition that they've inherited through their church or their favorite set of Bible teachers or televangelists or whatever without critically analyzing it. However, while it's true that one's eschatology shouldn't, you know, divide us in terms of one's status of salvation, right? This is not a salvific issue, uh, or with, you know, in terms of the fellowship within the local congregation. You shouldn't have church splits over this. It is important, though, um, to many aspects of daily Christian life and faith. Eschatology is not a primary issue; it's not of primary importance, but it is not unimportant. Okay. Um, And we're going to see that as we unpack this today. Uh, What we believe about the end times affects our times today. And it also affects the way that we live today in significant ways, which sometimes I think many Christians overlook. So this episode is going to serve as an introduction into the topic of eschatology. I'm going to lay out and define the major views and then offer a few ways in which our beliefs about this topic affect the way that we live as Christians today. I'll share a little bit of my own story and my journey in figuring out and coming to my convictions on eschatology and in future episodes, we're going to consider some of the important biblical texts in seeking to form a biblically faithful eschatology. Okay. So that this is actually the first episode into what will be a series on eschatology as we dive deeper into this topic. Now, As we get started here, let me just give you a lay of the land of the eschatological landscape, okay? So part of the reason why this topic can seem so daunting to believers to figure out is actually the preponderance of views on it. There's so many different views, right? There's, There's four major, what's called millennial positions, right? And then there's also, in addition to that... Well, on top of that, subpositions that kind of intersect and make it seem really complex to, to beginners to understand. And you, if you add to this the fact that within each of these camps, there are also people who hold to slightly different variations of these major views, you know, that could just seem really overwhelming. But to help you make sense of this, and I'm going to try to do my best to do this, I'm going to lay them out clearly here, at least the major ones, right, and their relationship to one another. Just clearly defining them, right? In our first section. then the second section, I'll get into a little bit of my own story and opinions on these matters, okay? So let's get started first with millennial views. Millennial views. And no, this is not about the opinion of whiny people who love avocado toast and want to, you know, some participation trophies and are, you know, born in the 1980s to 2000s. Not those millennials, Okay just joking. Um, the millennial view that I have in in view here is actually about the thousand year reign of Christ, which is written about in Revelation chapter 20. Um, in Revelation 20, the devil is bound for a thousand years. You can see 20 verse two, so that he might not deceive the nations during the millennium, after which he's released for a short period in verse three. Uh, the saints are viewed as reigning with Christ for a thousand years, that's verses four to six. And there's a brief rebellion led by Satan after the thousand years, which is followed by him being cast into the lake of fire, that's verses seven to 10. And then you see the great uh, white throne judgment, which is all the rest of the chapter, okay? Um, that's kind of a brief rundown of Revelation 20. And while Revelation 20 is a key text, it's by no means the most important text in issues relating to eschatology. So this kind of adds to the the, the dif- difficulty in speaking about this, right? The Revelation 20, uh, it appears in a book which is infamous for how highly symbolic it is and difficult to interpret, especially if you t- try to interpret, uh, to interpret Revelation apart from a proper understanding of the Old Testament and also the first century context that was written to. And thus, you know, it, it's a little strange actually why uh, these four major views which I'm gonna go through here have been categorized according to views on the millennium so prominently right however you know we're gonna have to work with things as they are so here are the three major views of the millennium and one of them is a offshoot of the other so that's how you get four okay so the first one is historic premillennialism premill okay that's for shorthand i'm just gonna call historic premillennialism just premill okay so premillennialism or premill is the position that says that Christ will come back before the millennial reign in Revelation 20, right? The pre prefix there means before. So that's an easy way to remember what this this view believes. And according to this view, the present church age continues towards a a time of great tribulation. And after this time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ returns and establishes a physical earthly millennial kingdom. And when he returns, Satan will be bound and believers who have died will be resurrected. Then together with them, believers who are still alive will reign with him on the earth for the thousand years. Um, Both receive uh, glorified resurrection bodies and many of the unbelievers still on earth will turn to Christ and be saved during this millennial age. And at the end of the millennium, um, Satan will be released to to lead a final short rebellion with, with many unbelievers who still remain unconverted. And Satan will be decisively defeated and the second resurrection of the dead unbelievers will be raised for final judgment before the eternal state. This view tends to be uh, a bit pessimistic about the flow of history approaching the end. It expects that things are going to get worse and worse as we come closer to that end. Uh, It was also a very popular position within the early and patristic church. Uh, You see this in a lot of the early writers. And it's sometimes referred to in those early writers as Chileism which comes from the Greek "chiliasmos," meaning a thousand, okay? So that's the first position there, just a brief kind of overview. Premillennialism. Now, there's an offshoot of premillennialism called dispensational Ah. (laughs) premillennialism. Sorry, (laughs) you see, even for the guy trying to (laughs) explain these things, these are complicated words, okay? So dispensational premillennialism, okay? I'm going to shorthand it as dispi premill. Please don't take any offense for that. This is just to help me (laughs) say these words uh, more efficiently. So we're going to call this one Dispy Premill, A modern variation of historic premial, right? that position we just went over, is called Dispy a dispensational Premil- Pre-mill- blah, blah, blah. <laughs> premillennialism. Oh man, you try saying this. Anyways, Dispy Premill. okay? This view though, did not exist in church history until the late 1800s. And its origin is often connected with John Nelson Darby, who lived between 1800 to 1882. Okay, uh, th- in this view, Christ's return is not just before the millennium, but also before the great tribulation. So it adds another sudden return of Christ to call believers to himself, which is commonly referred to as the rapture. I'm sure that a lot of you have heard about the rapture. Okay, this position within this is called the pre-tribulation rapture. And it's actually the most popular view within this whole camp of this primal. And I would say even within evangelicalism. This is a very, very popular view. During uh, this time, right, the Antichrist will set up his false kingdom through deception and a traitorous compact with the Jewish people. Uh, he's going to make, and this will lead to eventually to a second Holocaust. And the Jewish Temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt um, sometime before this, and, uh, and all that happens, right? And sacrifices even are going to be reestablished, and. Uh, times on earth are going to get increasingly more difficult with increased tribulations and persecutions and disasters over a seven year period of time, which they consider the great tribulation. And after this great tribulation, Christ will return in fullness to forcibly overthrow the antichrist and to reign uh, for the millennium physically on earth. So they also believe in this physical literal thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Uh, They believe that then there will be a brief rebellion as Satan is released at the end of the literal thousand years, uh, which Christ will squash and usher in the eternal state. Now, some proponents of this view also see two resurrections occurring, right? One resurrection of the just, to glory, before the millennium, and then another to the unjust, to judgment at the end, when Satan is thrown into a lake of fire. Now, there's a lot of variation within this camp. So again, I'm trying to ask, charitably and broadly as I can, define this view, and all of the views here actually. Now, as one can see, in this view, ethnic and national Israel plays a really important role in the end times. And hence, it's why this view tends to be really interested in what's happening in the Middle East today, and sometimes even blindly supports Israel. Um, They see Israel becoming a nation in in the 1940s as having eschatological significance. And on that basis, many argue that we're living today in the last days as the last generation that will see Christ return. Actually, many popular dispensational teachers in the past and past decades, they actually taught. That with real confidence that the rapture would happen in the 1980s. Why is that? Well, because if Israel became a a nation in the 1940s and a generation is about 40 years, you add 40 years to 1940 and you get somewhere in the 1980s, okay? Now, obviously, those predictions did not work out too well for them. Yet, somehow, I don't know how this happens, but their books are still selling and they're still making predictions about a rapture that's going to happen anytime now. Uh, And there's been so many failed rapture predictions. Uh, furthermore, many proponents of this view do not see the kingdom as a present reality, right? The kingdom is not a present reality, but rather something that happens in the future during the millennial reign of Christ, right? So somebody once goes go so far as to say that Christ is like an exiled king right now. Um, and they say that, you know, Satan is currently the ruler of the world, but Jesus, he's only enthroned in heaven, but won't be king on earth until later. Okay, that's important for this view. Um other variations of this pre-mill differ on where to place the rapture. Okay, so there is. Like I said, a lot of variation within this view. Some argue for a partial rapture view, which states that only faithful believers who are watching and waiting for the Lord's return will be taken in the rapture, and the rest will be left on earth to suffer the tribulation. Some others argue for what's called a mid-tribulation rapture, which places it at the middle of this um, seven years of tribulation. And others still argue for a post-tribulation rapture, which places it at the end of the great tribulation. And this is not to be confused, by the way, by post-millennialism, which which we'll talk about later. Uh, yet more positions within the Dispy Premill use the terms pre-wrath and post-wrath for their views of the rapture with other distinctive beliefs, okay? Uh, which I don't have time to get into. Because of this emphasis though on the rapture doctrine, another feature of this Dispy Premill system is called eminency, right? That is the, the expectation of an any moment return of Christ to rapture his church. And I'm sure you've probably seen images of this, right? It's the whole Left Behind series where you see like planes falling out of the air, you know, a, a pile of clothes left on the ground and, you know, Christians have been raptured out, um, apparently naked. <laughs> this view is by far the most complex of the eschatological systems. And it also tends to be the most pessimistic of the millennial positions. Seeing the decline of society into increasing ungodliness as a sign that the time is near, okay? Okay. The, the doctrine of the um, sudden any moment rapture also makes a tend towards end time speculation and thinking that we're in the last generation on earth now with not much time left. That's also impo- important about this position. However, even with all of this complexity, this be primo has become very popular amongst a lot of mainstream evangelicals. And if you grew up in a generally evangelical uh, church, this is probably the view that you default to. Right? And this was the view that I defaulted to. And it's the majority view of a lot of Christians today. And it's the most popular view amongst TV preachers and popular evangelists and a lot of books that are written on the topic within the last century. Even though in history, it's very novel. This is a new view. Anyways, let's move on. Our millennialism is our next millennial view. I'm gonna shorthand this as Amil, okay? So our millennialism or Amil, Uh, understands the second coming of Christ to be a single event instead of occurring in two phases, okay? So unlike premil, the name amillennialism comes from the Greek prefix a, right? Which is a negator implying no millennium. However, this is an unfortunate misnomer and a misrepresentation of what amils believe, okay? They do believe in a millennium, but they just conceptualize the nature of it differently to the premillennialists and the postmillennialists, okay? Um, for Amos, the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 for a thousand years refers to the present rule of Jesus Christ through the church beginning at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you can see John 12 verses 31 to 33 for where they would point for that. And continuing until the parousia or the um, second return. Okay. It it understands the uh, millennium as a spiritual reign of Christ and his saints and the number 1000 as a symbolic number, right? As you know, all the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic, actually. If you go through and look at just how the book of Revelation, how John uses numbers, he uses them almost without exception symbolically. Which repre- And this number 1000 represents a long and complete time, right? Uh, A thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. And this is not uncommon in the Bible. For example, God owns the the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean that he doesn't own the cattle on the thousand and one hill? No, it's it's just a symbolic number, meaning a, a large number, a complete amount. Okay. Uh, now, some see the millennial reign as only referring to deceased saints in heaven. So some Amels believe that, right? Uh, while other Amels view it as um, also the earthly and uh, reign, but in, only in a spiritual sense through the church. Uh, Amel uh, believes that because Satan was bound by Christ's victory at the cross and resurrection, that the spread of the gospel is not able to be hindered by Satan deceiving the nations. Though he still exercises significant yet limited influence, okay? It understands this binding, right? Uh, as being a, for a specific purpose. You, you notice in the text, it actually says that in verse three, it says that he's bound, that he might not deceive the nations, right? So the, they, they see that there's a specific reason for Satan's binding. And Amos tend to conceptualize the kingdom as primarily spiritual in nature until the eschaton, when Christ returns and inaugurates a physical reign, okay? That's also really important that Amos conceptualize the kingdom primarily as spiritual in nature, okay? Um, Amos usually take a a symbolic approach to to interpreting the book of Revelation and they see it as seven cycles of what they call recapitulation, Right. Instead of seeing it as a straight line story of chronology. Right. They, they don't read it as if it's start to finish in the sense of beginning to end chronologically. But actually, they, they note that there's seven cycles of repetition, of recapitulation. Right. Um, in Revelation. And uh, they, they, they would point out the fact that the, the end in Revelation seems to occur about seven times. Actually, if you read through the book of Revelation, it seems like the end is happens and then it kind of starts over again right? So they would see it as a rather progressive parallelism, right? With each cycle retelling aspects of the history of redemption and moving increasingly closer to the end uh, with each recapitulation. And I think that's actually a really beneficial way of looking at the structure of Revelation. Um, Amos understand the first resurrection as an allusion to Christ's like Christian salvation. So, when the Revelation talks about the first resurrection, they think it's talking about a Christian salvation, which is spoken of as a conversion from spiritual life to death. So, it is a sort of res- a resurrection, right? Um, at which, you know, saints begin to reign presently with Christ. And you can see Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, and Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Now, Amels believe that throughout history, there are times when the gospel is in season and out of season good times and bad times, uh, which can tend to go in cycles, right? So the Amel view of history is sort of up and down. Uh, And thus many Armels believe that Christ's return could either be during a time of upswing, right? It could be a time when things are getting better and the gospel is prospering, or it could be a time of downswing when things are getting worse. So Armels expect that the church will experience both victories and suffering simultaneously until the second coming. Uh, So you tend to get you know, and find both optimistic and pessimistic Armills. okay? This view is perhaps the most neutral in those terms, right, of its outlook on the flow of history. However, most Armills do believe that there will be a final apostasy and increasing persecution as we near the end time, the final time, okay? As Alan Bandy notes, right, he says this, quote, important to the Amelianist's understanding is the tension of the already, but not yet. Christians presently live in the inaugurated kingdom as Christ reigns from heaven, yet they await the kingdom's full realization when Christ will reign on earth eternally. It also sees the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament as fulfilled in Christ and the church, often in a spiritual sense. Since these promises have been fulfilled, no future fulfillment is required. They see the church as fulfilling uh, the promises to Israel and as true, the true Israel of God, and they would get that from passages like Romans four verses one to sixteen and Galatians six sixteen. In amillennialism, there isn't as much of a heavy emphasis on the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ, since, you know, we don't know if he will return on an up cycle or on a down cycle. And this view can sometimes tend towards a disengaged sort of disposition um, in redeeming the various supposedly secular aspects of society, such as politics, uh, because of its spiritualized conception of the kingdom right? Uh, then they think that the nature of the kingdom is primarily s- spiritual and therefore, you know, it sometimes lead in, leads into what is known as radical two kingdoms theology, which is a view in, um, in reform theology, in some branches of reform theology, right? Uh, that sometimes is held in tandem with the Amal view and it sharply divides between the secular and the sacred realms, right? That the, the church is concerned with the sacred while the secular is left to a supposedly neutral sphere. Let's talk now about the last uh, millennial view, which is post-millennialism. We're gonna call it post-mill, okay? So post-millennialism or post-mill understands that Christ will return after the millennium, right, so the post there meaning after, right? Post-mill and amill actually share a lot of common beliefs. They're kind of like cousins. And, and some would even say that post-mill is simply a more hopeful version of amill. mill. In fact, actually, Amillennialists were known as postmillennialists up until the 1900s. A lot of people don't know that. However, you know, I think there's enough differences to keep them distinct now, especially as this has been fleshed out more and more in theological debate and discussions these days. Now, both agree that Christ's final coming brings one general physical resurrection of the righteous and the wicked at the end, followed by the final judgment and the culminating with the new heavens and the new earth. And, and this is one of the major distinctions between the, both of these views and the premillennial views. Now, both agree that God's promises to Old Testament Israel are fulfilled through Christ and in the church. And indeed, all of the promises of God find a yes and amen in him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians one twenty. Thus, national Israel doesn't actually feature very prominently in these systems, although both affirm that God will save many Jewish people through the expanse of the gospel. Now, both Amel and Postmel agree that the thousand-year millennium reign uh, of Christ in Revelation 20 is a figurative period where the gospel is preached throughout the world because Satan is bound. And according to this view, the progress of the gospel, so according to Postmel, the progress of the gospel will gradually increase until a majority of the world becomes Christian. Now, this does not mean that every single person will be regenerated and saved. Rather, what Paul smells mean is that the influence of the gospel will be pervasive throughout all of society and all of the world uh, as a result of its growth. Okay? They point to Jesus's parables of the growth of the kingdom in Matthew 13, for example, as illustrative of this, right? That the kingdom is like a mustard seed and it's like leaven, which eventually grows to take over the whole garden. It becomes a big tree that takes over the whole garden and the leaven eventually leavens the whole lump of dough right? This, this idea of starting small and gradually growing to overtake the whole thing. As a result, society will be influenced by Christianity and increasingly function according to God's standards. Now, this is also why theonomy, which is the study of applying principles of God's law to govern all aspects of society. So theonomy, theos meaning God, nomos meaning law, right? So, theonomy. Theonomy is oftentimes closely tied to postmillennialism. Postmills would also uh, point to Jesus's promise that the gates of hell, which remember gates are defensive structures, not offensive, the gates of hell are not going to withstand the advance of the church as Jesus builds it. And that's what he said in Matthew 16, 18. And they also would point to the fact that Jesus puts his total authority and power and promise of his presence behind the great commission to the disciples. He tells the disciples to go disciple all the nations in Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. And he backs them up with all of his power, his authority and his presence. And they reason then that if Jesus has guaranteed that hell's opposition will not thwart the building of his church, and that the disciples have been given all his authority, power, and presence, backing their commission to make disciples of the nations, and God promises to make the nations his heritage in Psalm 2 and other passages, then, you know, how could you avoid the worldwide expansion of the kingdom in time and history? It seems like with all of these things behind it, there's no way it could be stopped. Many postmills believe that as the kingdom grows, it will gradually usher in a golden age of peace and righteousness on earth, which will last for a long period of time. Now, some view this as the millennial reign, while others would see the whole period from the time of Christ's ascension to his return as the millennium. So there is some variation within the postmill camp as well. Now, in this sense, postmill actually agrees with premill about the nature of the kingdom See both pre-mill and post-mill see the kingdom as an as earthly as a earthly reality but post-mill disagrees with it in the timing and how it's inaugurated okay Now, Postman believes at the end of this period, of this millennium period, Christ will return to a conquered and Christianized earth. Believers and unbelievers will be raised at the general resurrection and the final judgment will occur, ushering in the new heavens and the earth and the entrance into the eternal state. Now, this view is the most optimistic of all the millennial positions, obviously. The postmill view also uh, doesn't tend to stress that imminency of Christ's return since the growth of the kingdom is gradual and happens over a very long period of time. Thus, in this view, we could actually still be in the early church. I don't know if anybody has ever really considered that. that maybe we're still in the early church. Maybe there's still hundreds, maybe even thousands of years to go, right? Uh, so this view uh, considers that we might still be in the early church period that Christ could tarry for hundreds or even thousands of years still. And one of the key texts for this belief is the repeated affirmation that Christ shall reign until he has put every enemy under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated before the end is death itself. And you can see that, for example, in Psalm 110 verse one, which is the most quoted psalm and verse in the Bible. That's probably God's favorite verse, right? And you can also see it's affirmed by, let's say, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 26, okay? Now, in terms of the differences between the major views, that is pre-mill, amel, and post one of the critical questions is to ask um, whether this age will transition immediately into the eternal state or the golden age, right? Or whether there's another intermediary stage of eschatological um, of this this eschatological kingdom, which lays in between. So primos argue that passages like Isaiah 11 and uh, 65 to 66, uh, Zechariah 14, 1 Corinthians 15, they would also kind of put in there. They, they think that those passages indicate an intermediary stage, right? That it, kind of in between stage between this age and then the age to come, right? The eternal state. However, Amels and Postmills contend that those passages actually refer to either the church age or the final state. Um, another major difference is that all of the other millennial views tend to be pessimistic about the ultimate direction of society in time, right? before the return of Christ. So Premill and armil overall would be sort of pessimistic, at least in comparison to uh, post-millennialism. so some actually even jokingly call them pessimillennialism right um, because they have this sort of belief that things are going to get worse and worse coming down to the end and they all believe in some sort of general decline right to varying degrees obviously however mill is committedly optimistic and hopeful about the gospel's success to transform the world So let's talk a little bit now, those were the four millennial stances, right? Now, let's talk a little bit about eschatological views on prophecy, because this is another subsection uh, that you need to understand. So in addition to those millennial stances, there are other views relevant to eschatology. And they have to do with how one views many of the prophecies in the Bible concerning the last days, particularly Jesus' prophecies in Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, and in the book of Revelation. And these views are Futurism, Idealism, Historicism, and Preterism. Okay, so I'll go through each of them and briefly define them. So Futurism, now as the name implies, this view sees the majority of prophecies concerning the last days and the book of Revelation as in the future to us today. Okay? So it sees the prophecies of Jesus in Matthew 24 about the end of the age uh, and, and the great tribulation as still in our future, right? And hence, we can expect that things will get worse and worse leading up to the fulfillment of those prophecies. And many premills and dispies and amills hold to some form of futurism of this view of prophecy. Okay, so that's futurism. The next one is idealism. Now, this view is also called the spiritual view or the idealistic view. Now, concerning the book of Revelation, idealism sees it as an allegorical representation of the types of things or events believers may expect in the time between the inauguration of Christ's kingdom and its consummation. So therefore, it doesn't see the events of Revelation as necessarily tied to any one specific event in history. Rather, it focuses on principles and ideas of uh, cosmic spiritual conflict or uh, of a war with Satan, which will repeat in various forms until the second coming. That's how it views these prophecies. Thus, you know, this this idealistic view focuses on broad patterns and how it's repeated throughout the world, the world and history, right? It is, it's distinct from the other views in that it doesn't see um, any of the prophecies except for perhaps in some cases, the second coming and final judgment as being fulfilled in a literal physical, earthly sense, either in the past, present, or future. So it's very different from the other views in that it does not look for literal fulfillment, right? It's almost purely symbolic or spiritual fulfillment. Uh, And this is a view predominantly held uh, by some Amels, not all. So not all Amels are idealists, okay? Let me just make that clear. Uh, And also this was a view that was very popular in liberal Christianity, okay? So also, you know, a lot of Orthodox believers would not accept this view because of that. Now, I'll note that some Amils um, take more of a what's called an eclectic approach, right? And they would hold futuristic and idealistic and preteristic and historic even views depending on the prophecy that they're dealing with, okay? So just put that out there. Let's move to the next view here on, on how to approach prophecy. It's called historicism, historicism. So the historicists, sees the book of Revelation as a sort of template for history, right? They they typically understand that the prophecies, uh, that that they're going to be continuous from the times uh, of the prophet until the present day and beyond, right? So it often sees that there can be multiple fulfillments of these types, right? But many argue that the exact time periods um, are not specified, right? So for example, it could see uh, Nero, and the Roman Papacy as versions of the Antichrist, right? So that's how historicism sort of interprets these prophecies, uh, or you know the, the Middle East, uh, sorry, the Middle Ages and the French Revolution and the two world wars as you know great times of great tribulation. Okay, uh, many adherents of this position view Revelation one to three as seven periods in church history. You may have heard of that sort of view. Uh, they see the breaking of the seals in chapters four to seven as symbolizing the fall of the Roman Empire. The trumpet judgments in chapters eight to 10 as the invasion of the Roman Empire by, by the Vandals and the Huns and the Sacrins and the Turks and etc. right? And then chapters 11 to 13 as re- representing the true church in a struggle against Roman Catholicism. And then the bold judgments in chapters 14 to 16 as God's judgment on the Catholic church leading into the future overthrow of Catholicism, which is depicted in chapters 17 to 19. So this was actually a pretty popular view by a lot of the reformers who tended to, you know, within their own cultural context and historical context, interpret the book of of Revelation, right? Uh, It concerns itself with tracking the church's development over the centuries and tries to align historical events with what's described in the book of Revelation. Now, one of the big problems with that is actually the lack of agreement concerning how to align these events to the book of Revelation. And it's actually led to the waning of support for this type of view, because there's no consistency. One historicist will align things this way and another will align them a different way. It also tends to be very centered on finding fulfillment only within the history of the Western world. So that's kind of a problem too, because there's Christians all over the world. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your support. If you've benefited from the ministry of Theotivity, please prayerfully consider partnering with me by giving a donation of any amount. Big or small, it all helps. If you're like me, I know you long to see more solid Christian content getting out there, but that takes time, effort, and money. So, if this is something that you'd like to see continue, and if you found value in the content here at Theotivity, Skip a few fancy latte drinks from your favorite woke coffee shop and please consider donating at Theotivity.com donate. You can find links to donate in the description of this post or episode. Thanks so much. Let's talk about the last uh, way to approach Bible prophecy, which is called preterism. Preterism, okay? This word comes from the Latin preter, meaning past. And it believes that many, um, in the case of partial preterists or all, in the case of hyper or full preterism, of the Bible's prophecies have been fulfilled already. Okay, so partial preterists believe that many are fulfilled and full preterists believe that all have been fulfilled. So hyper or full preterism, which even denies a future physical um, final coming of Christ and the eschaton is, is actually considered heresy by most in evangelical Christian circles. And even I would say by the historic Christian creeds. So I would categorize that as a non-Orthodox position, full or hyper-Preterism. If you deny the final coming of Christ, then that's a core tenet of Christianity, right? But partial Preterism, not to be confirmed with hyper or full Preterism, right? Partial Preterism is actually a legitimate, historic, and Orthodox position that you could hold. It understands many of the fulfillments of Jesus's predictions concerning the destruction of the temple in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew twenty-four, and many of the events of Revelation, that book of Revelation, as actually having already been fulfilled in the events leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in seventy A.D., which signaled the end of the old covenant age. Okay, so they would say that when those uh, prophecies were made, they were future. They were future to the original audience, but they are past to us. Today, day. Okay. Um, so uh, it takes seriously. So this, this view of preterism, it takes seriously the fact that Jesus made those predictions to his original audience and promised that this generation, meaning, and speaking to his contemporaries, right? That he said to his contemporaries, this generation will not pass away before all of what he prophesied takes place. Right? So you, you have to wrestle with that. That's literally what Christ said. It also points out that there are many early and patristic church writers in church history who use actually the fulfillments of the events of 70 AD as an apologetic for the veracity of Jesus' prophecies. I bet a lot of evangelicals actually don't know this because we don't study church history. There are many actually early church writers who were using the fulfillment of Jesus's prophecies in Matthew 24, in the destruction of of Jerusalem in AD 70, as an apologetic to prove that, look, Jesus Christ really is who he says he is because his predictions came true to a dot. Uh, You could see, for example, Eusebius, he argues that way. Preterism, it recognizes that many of the references to the last days in the New Testament are actually in reference to the time period of great tribulation leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And thus, it had immediate relevance to the original audiences of the letters of the New Testament. So, preterism interprets the majority of the book of Revelation as concerning that same time period as John writes. I remember John writes and he says that he's a partner in the present tribulation in Revelation 1 verse 9. Uh, And it was current to him, present to him in the first century, right? Whatever the tribulation that he was a partner in, it had to have been during his day. And, you know, he was writing that these things were soon to take place. You can see verse one of Revelation uh, chapter one, right? Right there in the beginning of Revelation, John makes it clear upfront that these things are soon to take place and that the tribulation was presently happening because he was a partner in it then. Um, It points out that, you know, over and over, in the New Testament, there are these time markers that we have to take seriously about the last days, right? Uh, it, it, the New Testament says that they're soon, that you know, Christ is coming shortly or quickly, right? That Jesus is at the gate and he's near, right? Um, he's about to to judge, right? And those and that was written to those in the first century. What would they have interpreted that as? When they heard soon, would they think soon or two thousand years later? <laughs> Other views have to find other ways around these near time indicators. So all of the other views that don't take this preteristic approach, they have to find some other way to make sense of those very clear um, in time indicators, those near time indicators to the original audience. Now, partial preterism is often held by mills I think majority of post mills would be partial preterists as well. Although some mills also hold to various forms of preterism. So it's not exclusive only to postmill. Now, I want to share a little bit about my journey um, to a more hopeful eschatology, right? Uh, tell you a little bit of my story and maybe it'll help you as you kind of figure things out. So personally, I've actually gone through all <laughs> of the millennial positions as I grew in my faith and understanding of theology, right? So I started off actually as a dispensational premillennialist by default. Uh, since that was the only position available in my church context growing up in Trinidad, like everybody was bis- dispensational pretty much in my circles. And I took it for granted that this was the only way to view the end times, since everyone around me and all the books and movies that I had access to seemed to confirm this view. The only squabble, it seemed, was between you know whether to expect a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture. Uh, now books like the Left Behind series, uh, which is a f- series of fiction novels about you know the rapture and those sorts of things, and pre- different preachers and televangelists like John Hagee and David Jeremiah, they influenced a lot my my views. They quite significantly influenced my views at that time, and as a result, I tended to have a very pessimistic view of the future, and I took seriously that I might not live. To old age, or even have time to have kids and raise them before the end came, before the rapture happened. Right now, later in life, as I started to grow weary of the endless end time speculation and failed predictions of the rapture by many dispensationalists, I distinctly remember many times in my early years, actually, when uh, someone I knew or some TV preacher predicted that the rapture was right around the corner. Right? Whether it was because, you know, the Gulf War was happening in, I think it was the early 90s, or, you know, Y2K in the year 2000. Uh, those who are older and remember that whole boggle, you know what I mean, right? There was so many end time speculation around the year 2000. Uh, it seemed too sensational though for me. And it was, it seemed like very prone to conspiracy theories. Also, it didn't make sense to me that the dispensational system sees the Jewish temple and sacrifices being reinitiated right? Even if it's in a memorialist fa- fashion, right? This doesn't make sense because the whole book of Hebrews is about not going back to those things, right? Not only that, but a lot of the core beliefs of dispensationalism, I couldn't find them in the Bible, especially when you consider the, the verses that they would use as proof text. When I went and, and checked them out, like a good Berean, right? In the proper context, it didn't seem to teach what they were saying. Nowhere in the Bible, for example, does it talk about a rebuilt third temple, Now remember in biblical history that the first temple uh, that Solomon built uh, was destroyed and then eventually it was rebuilt, right? Afterwards, uh, so there was a second temple, which is the temple that existed during the time of Jesus. And the temple that was destroyed in that first century was that second temple. And the prophecies related to the rebuilding of the temple in the Old Testament are actually fulfilled in that second temple. So nowhere does it teach a third temple. Rebuilt temple in the Bible. Also, nowhere does it teach a seven-year tribulation, right? You actually have to piece that doctrine together by smashing bits and pieces from all over the Bible. There's no verse in its context that you can point to that teaches that. Uh, and nowhere does it say that there is some sort of a gap or a pause in Daniel's seventy weeks of years. And these are all things that are very essential to dispute primo. So, you know, then I just, I dropped the dispensationalism, right? I became a bit more of a historic pre-mill after that. And although, you know, I didn't really read extensively on this position, I did encounter the position through a lot of Bible commentary. So I felt like this, you know, freed me from living in constant anxiety over being left behind, right? And always speculating about what, you know, what was going, going on in the Middle East, right? However, it didn't really make sense to me how Jesus could be physically reigning on earth in the millennium, and yet you still have death and unbelievers and apostasy. How is that possible? If Jesus is physically <laughs> reigning on earth, why is there still death? Why is there still unbelievers and apostasy happening? Also, uh, the pessimism concerning the advance of the spread of the kingdom and the success of the gospel proclamation it actually didn't make a whole lot of um, motivation for the mission. Why bother if you know that you're guaranteed to fail? And Now, what happened from here is when I went to seminary to pursue my master's degree, I determined, uh, you know, I got to figure this out. I got to explore eschatology more intentionally. So I started to read more widely and came across some reformed amillennial writers. And their arguments, I find, were very compelling. And the way that they dealt with many of the scriptures seemed more consistent than the pre-mill interpretations that I had been used to. It was after my third year, actually, of Greek in an exegesis class in the book of Revelation, actually, uh, that we... Uh, where, you know, I had to do a whole bunch of exercises in translating from the Greek text of Revelation. Uh, It was through that, that I started to become more compelled of an armel position. The insights of, you know, that recapitulation happens in the book of Revelation. That was an eye-opener for me and helped me make more natural sense of the flow of the book rather than reading it as a strict literal chronological sequence, right? Um, Because I always wondered, why is it that the end seems to happen multiple times in the book of Revelation? I saw also um, what many premill and Dispies do in splitting events, right? Like the rapture and the resurrection. Uh, it actually makes more sense instead of splitting those things in, you know, in terms of the the, the verses that they point to to support them to actually unify them, right? And see them as referring to the same event, which is the final resurrection. So I held an Amal view for a few years until more recently. And, you know, I've, I, I think that it really helped me to shed some of my overly pessimistic views about the future, but I still wasn't quite convinced of the success of the Great Commission. And it was puzzling to me why the devil would knowingly work so hard to bring us closer to his ultimate demise as well. Now, about three years ago, I decided that my eschatological journey really wouldn't be complete without seriously considering post-mill arguments, right? Now, prior to this, I'd only had a cursory understanding and limited engagement with the post view. At, at the encouragement of a friend, actually, I realized that, you know, I had maybe too simply dismissed it without actually wrestling with their best arguments, right? Because you always want to strongman an argument. Don't strawman an argument and just look at their weakest arguments, but you want to look at their best arguments. So, I started to read um, some of the best resources that I could find um, from a post-mill perspective. Uh, And I also watched and listened to some preachers and sermons, okay? Uh, One of the most influential books for me was actually R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus. Excellent book, go pick it up, right? And in that book, uh, he argues persuasively for a preterist understanding of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And uh, he does this according to sound exegesis of scripture and appeals to historic fulfillment in the first century accounts. And this and other resources, such as you know, reading large sections of Josephus's accounts of the first century after Christ's ministry and the years leading up to the destruction of, of Jerusalem. So Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived in the first century. Um, th- that convinced me actually that a preterist understanding of Jesus' prophecies concerning the end of the age is actually most consistent with the biblical text uh, when we consider the meaning of words and the original audience context. And in future episodes, I'm gonna unpack that more. Let me just say that in passing now. The the historical accounts of this time period leading up to 70 AD, they actually read like the fulfillment of Jesus's words exactly. And I think that uh, much of the reason that many Christians today struggle and don't see this is because they're actually unfamiliar with history. Now, once I was convinced of a preterist view of Matthew 24, everything else seemed to fall into place. Right? Because it's a logical step, right? If you reason that, well, wait a minute. If the Great Tribulation has already happened in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, then what should we expect for the future if the Great Tribulation is past, right? Since it was already past, then our expectations don't need to be pessimistic. Thus, this eliminates both the premil and many of the armill views of the unfolding of history. And this opened me up to considering more seriously the post view on other areas of the Bible's teaching and eschatology. So other authors such as Gary DeMar, Kenneth Gentry, Greg Bonson, and David Chilton, they were also really, really helpful for me to read and wrestle through a lot of passages. Now, I began to consider other passages such as Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which speak of Christ's reign on earth now after his death and resurrection. Right? that he is currently reigning and that God says to him, Sit at my feet, on sit, sit on my right, right hand, sorry, until I make your enemies your footstool. Right. And Psalm 2, which God promises to make the nations his inheritance. I, I started to see how Christ was already announcing the, his kingdom as a present reality during his ministry on earth in the first century. Right. He actually enters the scene proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand in Matthew 3, 2, right? So it was at hand when he started his ministry. And then he gives proof that indeed his kingdom had been inaugurated and and he was confirming this by signs of casting out demons. He says that in Matthew 12, 28, right? If I cast out demons by the hand of God, know that the kingdom has come among you, right? Christ ends his ministry by affirming that he has all authority, not just in heaven, like as some of the other eschatological views think, but also on earth, Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. So his kingdom is a present reality. It started at his ministry on earth, right? It was inaugurated. So that's contrary to premill, Christ's kingdom is not a future promise, but a present reality today. He reigns presently over everything. And we as his ambassadors, which is what Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, you can't be an ambassador of someone who is not actually a king. We proclaim his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and discipleship to obey all that he's commanded in every sphere of life, demolishing opposing ideologies and bringing every thought captive into the obedience to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Paul, accounts, Paul Paul's account of the end also clearly implies the gradual conquest of Christ's kingdom over all earthly enemies. So after proclaiming the resurrection... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses from starting from verse 24, he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God uh, the Father, right? So he's talking about the end, the end, the end, right? When Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, so this is a completed kingdom he's delivering to God the Father. And when does that happen? After destroying every rule and every authority and power. Why? For he must reign, how, how must he reign? Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Christ's reign is until he has put every enemy under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated or destroyed is death. So here Paul's chronology of history clearly teaches that the end only comes after Christ has destroyed every enemy. He currently rules and extends that rule through his church's gospel ministry. And we know from Psalm 110, which is what Paul is quoting here, that in verse two, it says that Christ rules in the midst of his enemies, right? So it's not a a rule or reign in the midst of peace, but it's actually right now a ruling and reigning in the midst of even his enemies, right? For example, the most popular Psalm, right? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, right? Every enemy has to be subdued. Abortion, tyranny, corruption, greed, all of these things that we see going on today, they have to be subdued put under his foot as it says in the verse right he's going to reign until every enemy is put under his foot and then when he returns he finishes the job by putting death to death and ushering in the, in the eternal state now no matter your eschatological position currently you have to wrestle honestly with what these passages clearly teach about the flow of history so unlike premill and amill beliefs it seems that these uh, verses clearly teach that when Christ returns there will be no more death See verse 26, right? Because he puts death to death. However, the, the pre-mill version of the millennium allows for physical death even during Christ's physical presence on earth, right? Remember that the pre-mill millennium, that thousand year reign, even during that thousand year, there can still be death and apostasy and unbelievers. Also, the word um, until in this verse is really important, right? He must reign until he's put every enemy under his feet. His reign is... Is from heaven, right? It says in Psalm uh, one ten verse one that he's at the right hand of God, and, and he's going to stay there until every enemy is subdued. So this doesn't, this subduing doesn't happen by him leaving heaven and coming down to earth again and vanquishing his foes in some sort of a, apocalyptic swoop, but rather it happens gradually until they're made, or they're all made his footstool, right? So thus, you know, this left me. Now with a, and a whole bunch of other verses too, right? I'm just focusing on a few. But this sort of thing left me with a very optimistic view of the end times and a long-term view of history an expanded view of the magnificence of Christ's kingdom and the church's mission today. Now let's talk a little bit about some practical outworkings of your eschatology, right? Now, I don't expect that this one episode is going to convince you of my particular eschatological view, which is partial preteris postmill. Right? So I'm a partial preterist in terms of how I look at Bible prophecies. Uh, a lot of them have already been fulfilled. There's still some that refer to the final uh, state. And then I'm a post-millennialist in terms of how I view the millennium right, and the second coming. Now, <clears throat> now convincing you of a more post-mill eschatology is going to be the task of future episodes uh, for your consideration, so more is coming down the line. But however, at this moment, I just wanna briefly point out a few practical ways that your eschatological viewpoint is going to actually affect how you live today in comparison with a post view. So firstly, planning for the future. Now, many Christians who believe in a pessimistic eschatology, particularly with the dispensational view, because of their belief that we are, you know, this fig tree generation that will likely see the rapture any moment now, they tend not to give a lot of motivation for planning for the future. Now, this is not to say that all dispensationalists live without a thought for the future. However, many do. Uh, Many live in such a way that they intend on spending everything and doing all that they can for the now without much thought to future generations, which they are convinced will not even exist. Uh, Indeed, this was the way I lived for, uh, for a long period of time because it was consistent with what I believed eschatologically. Some dispensationalists can tend to have a very low view of stewardship of the environment, for example, and building infrastructure for future generations because, you know, it'll all burn up very soon. It's summarized in the popular catchphrase, there's no point in polishing brass on a sinking ship. Now, historic pre-mills and armils fare a little bit better in this regard since their systems do not necess- necessitate an immediate, any moment return of Christ. However, post-mill, with this long view of history, provides the most natural impetus for planning for the future out of all the eschatological systems, in my opinion. Now Related to this issue of leaving a legacy and inheritance for one's kids and grandchildren, right? Because if you've got a long-term view of history and you're planning for the future, you want to do that. Proverbs 13, says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14 confirms this in the New Testament. So it's not just an Old Testament principle. And we're told to leave a legacy of faith, not just to our children, but even to our grandchildren in Deuteronomy 4, 9. And God has said that he is faithful and keeps his covenant and steadfast love even to a thousand generations in Deuteronomy 7 verse nine. That's gonna be a long time. Um, Many many of the more pessimistic eschatologies downplay this important biblical principle and even worse, some encourage people not to have kids at all and actively disobey the command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I've even met couples who believe in dispensationalism who actually have chosen not to have kids because they believe that the world is going to get worse and worse. So they're just going to wait for the rapture. Others choose to have smaller families, and this is a terrible shame and, and a sad state of affairs, really, because children are a blessing and a strong, biblically faithful families. They are an essential part of how God's kingdom grows through ordinary means. More on that in future episodes. Post mills generally tend to be very pro children and pro big families. Secondly, a second practical implication is engagement in the public square. Most of the pessimistic eschatologies, that is Premal, dispremill, and mill, often have a very low view of engagement in the public sphere or an underdeveloped theology of public engagement. Because of either their belief that ultimately these institutions in the public sphere, like government and politics and education, entertainment, media, arts, business, and economy, etc., uh, they believe that you know, these things are ultimately doomed to corruption and to decay into sinfulness, or the belief that Christ's kingdom is only spiritual and limited to the ecclesiastical matters of the church. Therefore, there's a low motivation for trying to engage in the public square. Often, even if there is engagement, it's it's merely for the purpose of gospel proclamation and personal salvation, uh, and to come out of the wicked world. Some views even look at certain spheres like politics as dirty and unbecoming of Christians. Thus, in these views, many can leave much of the public sphere without salty and illuminating influence of Christian Meaningful Christian presence. However, postmill has a strong emphasis on bringing the gospel of the kingdom to bear on all of life. No sphere is apart from the the reign of Christ and His rule, and thus all of them must be brought into subjection to glorifying Him according to His Word. Also, there's a strong impetus to building things like schools and production houses and universities and hospitals, etc. Right? Much of the what the Puritans came over to North America to build in the New World from England was born out of their postmillennial worldview. And they were aiming to build something that would last for generations. And we today are recipients of that blessed inheritance in North America. And related to this is the view of redeeming culture. Now, some of the other views do have a theology of the redemption of culture. However, ultimately, the expectations are limited. Perhaps we may, you know, have some temporal success, but we can't really expect long lasting success at cultural transformation. Uh, Postmill, though, not only seeks to transform the culture, but also expects that it's actually going to work, perhaps not in our lifetimes, right? But over the long haul of history, remember, Postmill has a very long term view of history. uh, Christ will have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth in everything. That's Psalm 72 verse 8. And it expects that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem that's revelation 2124 and that all sorts of cultural artifacts is going to glorify God in the renewed earth so while in some other eschatologies they do you know work for cultural re- uh, redemption uh, your outlook and expectation is going to matter in how you approach that work for example if you're playing football and your team goes into the game saying well there's no way we can win these the, this guy, this game guys you know um but we're going to give it our best anyways They're going to play very differently from a team that actually believes that they can win, even though it might be a grueling battle. You see, your morale and motivation matters. Postmill does not believe that, uh, you know, we can do this in our own strength, however, right? Don't get that wrong. But that God will be faithful to his promise through his spirit to work in the lives of countless believers and the church over time. And there, there is not a single institution or artifact of culture that we do not say that this belongs to Christ and must be brought into submission to him for his glory. So third way that eschatology practically impacts you is the purity of the church. The pessimistic views expect an inevitable decline and weakening of the church culminating eventually in the great apostasy. In effect, they expect the opposite of what Jesus says in Matthew 16, that they expect that the gates of hell will prevail against the church. They they don't see the kingdom growth as a long-term outcome, but rather a shrinking of the kingdom so that only a few shall be saved. And that in the last days, the church itself will not be pure, but rather riddled with impurity. However, Postmill expects to see the church strengthen and grow, even through many times of persecution, suffering, and trials, which act like the refiner's fire for the purity of the church. Indeed, judgment must start in the house of the Lord, 1 Peter 4, 17. Thus, there's a strong motivation for the purity of the church and its doctrine. Only in the post view does it have the hope of expecting that Christ's bride, the church, will actually accomplish the mission that he gave her to win the nations to him. He has given her the most powerful weapons, the sword of the spirit and prayer, the most mighty presence of the indwelling spirit and the promise of his victory. So what can stop her? To say that the devil and his forces will be victorious against that sort of power is to to claim basically that Satan is more powerful and sovereign, which is clearly untrue. It is to say that the church loses in history and the church has to come, and sorry, and Christ has to come to rescue her a second time. Yet, I don't think this is what the narrative of the Bible teaches. Christ has done his redemption once for all for his bride. Fourthly, a fourth practical implication is evangelistic motivation and mission. All the eschatological positions have a strong motivation towards evangelism. And this is good. However, there are some nuances and differences. For some of uh, the more pessimistic outlooks, the motivation is more akin to something like, hey, let's try to save as many people before this ship goes down. And this can lead to a sort of gospel message that sounds kind of like fire insurance, uh, like a fire insurance pitch, Okay. It can even turn into a Gnostic sort of way of, you know, devaluing the the worth of the physical and material world as part of God's redemptive plan, which he actually talks about in Romans 8 verse 19. Evangelism then can become something, you know, like simply a plan to save souls and to be disembodied from physical realities. Now, this does not mean that all of the other views fall into this error, but it is a factor. A reformed post-mill view, however, preaches a gospel of the kingdom that men and women are called to repent in glad submission to Christ, the king, and seek first his kingdom priorities now. Furthermore, because of its optimism, it seeks and expects to see gospel success in every place in the long term. Uh, Many of the Puritans and reformed missionaries actually were post-mill in their eschatology and that drove them to that type of frontier mission. Now, related to this is a long-term view of the mission of God. Because mills view uh, the mission of God not merely as the redemption of souls, but of the entire cosmos, it takes a long-term view of the mission. It seeks to build institutions and to work generationally. It sees long-lasting change happening gradually and consistently instead of as like a flash in a pan, right? For the Postmill, time is on their side. For other eschatologies, because of the eminent urgency, it can tend to have a short-term view of the mission. Also, the demeanor of the mission in pessimistic views can tend to be like a a bunker mentality, right? Like of just trying to weather out the storm and endure instead of a, you know, a, a sort of attitude of, hey, let's go take that hill, boys, right? That sort of mentality that seeks to storm hell's gates with heavenly bombardment. Fifthly, and I'll end here um, in terms of practical outworkings is a confidence in trials and a victorious outlook. Now, all Christians find ultimate confidence in their security in Christ in the midst of trials, regardless of their eschatological view, right? We all have that hope. We all know that to, to die is Christ, right? Uh, and, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. However, Postmel also adds to this, I think the biblical knowledge that even if we should die, ultimately God's plan to win the world to Christ and to subdue, subdue every enemy in time on earth will be successful, right? That one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the seas. And as it says in Habakkuk two fourteen. And this gives the type of confidence that a soldier on the battlefield who knows that his side is superior and will win the war no matter the outcome of his personal fight. That's the type of confidence you have, right? Because even if you die, you know that your side is on the winning side. And we have a different view of trials then when we fight from a position of victory. How oftentimes people with a more pessimistic outlook can fall into a sort of depressed outlook on life in the here and now with no hopes of ever turning things around in the future. And perhaps one of the most insightful differences for me is actually the view of Satan and the powers of evil. If you think about this and track with me carefully here, right, if you think it through logically, Right? In the more pessimistic eschatologies, right? why would Satan continue to work so hard at doing the things which will hasten the coming of the end and his demise? You ever thought about that? Right Now, most Christians agree that the devil, he knows the word of God, although obviously he doesn't believe it in a saving way. Right, But if he knows the word of God, then he must know God's plan for history and the end. So why then would Satan continue to work so hard at corrupting the world corrupting governments, education, law, entertainment, churches, etc. If he knows that the more the world declines, the closer it draws to his demise in the end. Why would he accelerate his own destruction? Now, some might argue that, you know, because, you know, he's stupid or he hasn't mixed up. But that doesn't really seem like the sly snake that the Bible portrays him as. However, if the post perspective is true then it actually makes sense why the devil is working so frantically and so hard to corrupt the world because it's the only way that he can delay his ultimate defeat. Furthermore, the post-mill view knows that ultimately all of Christ's enemies will be put under his feet in history. And that gives perspective when we're surrounded by a world that seems to be overtaken by the evil one. This world is not his and he's living on borrowed time. The more that Christians wake up and take seriously their call to to take godly dominion in every sphere, the closer Satan's demise draws near. Thus, you can see uh, the efforts of Satan now, like that of like maybe a ravenous yet chained and desperate wild beast who knows that his time is limited. And you know this hopefulness and a victorious outlook, right? This that this is a practical difference between these views, right? This this view of hopefulness in the long run, it is actually victorious visions that survive. No one gets excited with a defeatist vision, right? Like, come join us as we lose for Jesus. Now, they might do this out of obligation or sense of duty and loyalty, but it's not a very inspiring message. And ultimately, zeal tends to fade within a relatively short period of time with those sorts of visions. And this is true even in the secular demonic false eschatologies like Marxism, which believes that it can win and remake the world, right? Marxism is a a competing worldview with its own eschatology and it has a victorious eschatology, but it's a false one. But that is the type of vision that gets its followers excited, motivated to sacrifice for this vision and energized to work hard at it. That's why Marxists have taken over the world today. And, and this is why you have tons of these psycho Marxists trying to make their failed vision of flourishing work. However, it's a false hope. Post Mildo, I believe, is a true victorious vision that says, come join Christ as he makes every enemy his footstool. Now that's a vision that can inspire many to give their lives for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I know that not all of these comparisons will be true for every single person who holds a different eschatological viewpoint. There are far too many variations in beliefs for such generalizations to be 100% accurate in all cases. However, I do believe that the generalizations I've laid out here are helpful in terms of getting a broad overview of things. There are other practical implications that we could expound on, but for now, I'll end with a quote from that great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who once wrote in a commentary on the Psalms, he said this, David, was not a believer in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse and that the dispensations will will wind up in general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is not to go down amidst tenfold night if some of our prophetic brethren are to be believed. Not so do we expect, but we look for a day when the dwellers in all the lands shall learn righteousness, shall trust in the Savior, shall worship thee alone, O God, and shall glorify thy name. The modern notion has greatly dampened the zeal of the church for missions. And the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural, the better the cause for God. It neither consorts with prophecy, honors God, nor inspires the church with ardor. Far hence be it driven. Now, as a side note, I've noticed that sometimes the thing that is true is the thing that is least like the others that are competing options. Because truth by its nature is exclusive. And I'm just noticing this, that post male eschatology is actually the only optimistic eschatology. It's exclusive. Now, that's not necessarily a strong argument for it, but simply an observation here. And I'd like to end by reemphasizing that the disagreements on this topic do not kick one out of the kingdom, right? We're still brothers and sisters in Christ with our ultimate hope that the Lord Jesus will return physically to usher in the eternal state and bliss, okay? However, These issues are important and have practical implications for our lives today. Any area of your theology that you're weak in, any area that we are weak in, is the area that we're most susceptible to Satan's attacks and lies. So for those who are, uh, for whom, you know, they've only known one particular perspective, let's say, I hope that this episode has at least opened your eyes up to an awareness of others' perspectives and maybe encourage you to look more into it. And I'll put some links to resources that can help you in that in the episode description. So you can check that out. In future episodes, we're going to explore more in depth the biblical arguments for a postmill worldview. I hope that it's going to provide you with fruitful food for thought and encourage all of us towards confidence in God's power to accomplish his purposes through us. And for the Christians who are listening in and the creatives who are listening in, I actually think a postmill eschatology is super useful, not only just true, but useful because then you, you, You create and imagine out of that. A victorious um, eschatology is actually great motivation towards creativity. (laughs) Anyways, I'll end it there. This has been a long... episode. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, And next in the series, we're going to look at Jesus' teachings in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. We're going to go through it verse by verse, um, exegetically, and looking at the historical fulfillments on what Jesus said about the end of the age. So stay tuned for that in future episodes. Until next time, soli Dill glory. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.